The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. Hey, it's Martine. Just a quick heads up that this story contains descriptions of violence that might be disturbing for some listeners. So please take care. Okay, here's the show. Deep in the Amazon rainforest in Brazil, there is a highway. It's this dilapidated, pothole-marked road that was built in the early 70s. What makes this highway so important is that it cuts through one of the last contiguous bastions of rainforest in the Amazon rainforest. Terry McCoy is the Post's Rio Bureau chief. In October, he traveled to Highway BR319. It's this gash of a road slicing through the heart of the Amazon. He wanted to understand the relationship between the road, the forest, and the people who live there. When you build a road, you open it up to civilization. And what is civilization if not deforestation? Every time you build a road that has this ripple effect, it's called the fishbone pattern. The road creates the spine of the fish. And then you have all these little roads, sometimes are illegal, sometimes are not, that branch off of the main road. And then they have more roads that branch off of that. And if from above, it honestly looks like a fishbone that's spiraling out into the forest. And that is how the destruction takes over the forest. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, March 21st. Today, a trip to the heart of the Amazon takes an unexpected turn. In recent months, there's been increasing discussion and debate over what's going to happen with this highway called BR319. For years, the highway has been in disrepair. Because of heavy rains and poor maintenance, the road has crumbled and the middle section is almost entirely mud. Recently, there's been an effort to rebuild it. President Jair Bolsonaro's administration has pledged to fix BR319. He says it would bring new opportunities for movement to the towns along the way. But everywhere the road has become usable again, deforestation has followed. Terry got a front-row view to that destruction, along with freelance photographer Rafael Alves. The road is actually a scar in the middle of the jungle. You can't find correlations that are stronger where the roads go, that's where deforestation is going to follow. But for many people, the road is also a lifeline. They say the road needs to be repaved. As the highway has fallen into disrepair, the communities along it have become increasingly isolated, cut off from commerce, from medical supplies, from the rest of Brazil. At one end of the road is the city of Manaus. Manaus is the biggest city in the Amazon region. But you can go to Manaus up to Venezuela, there's a road. But you cannot connect to the rest of Brazil by car. There's no way. You have to travel by boat, you have to travel by plane, and it's really expensive. So there is, uh, here in Brazil, we say that uh, there are lots of business people and politicians that use the road as a political lobby. They want it done. But they don't seem to be worried about the environmental issue that it is. 
you know, Amazonia is important to the, the whole planet. That is the worry of this highway, is that you have this highway that's slicing through the heart of the Amazon forest, the preserved core of the Amazon forest, at a moment of extreme tension when scientists are saying that this biome is already at, already reaching this tipping point. And it is such a divisive issue that public officials have, have opened up to public debate as to what people think should be done. Terry watched one of those debates online to try to get a sense of how people were thinking about the highway and its role in deforestation. Most people that go to these debates usually want it to be built. And so what you have then is dozens of people inside of these audiences that very much want this highway to be built and look at people who don't want it to be built as more or less detractors of development. People who don't want Amazon estate and, and Brazil to be able to live up to its fullest potential. And then their side, you have people who are scientists who say that this highway, if it gets built, this could be the end of the rainforest itself. One of these scientists is a man named Lucas Ferrante. Eu sou Lucas Ferrante, sou pesquisador na Amazônia e tenho trabalhado para proteger o bioma. He's 33 years old, so he's a young scientist, but he's dedicated much of his professional career to studying what is going to happen if this highway gets built. Os meus trabalhos, eles se concentram basicamente em tentar mitigar os danos ambientais. And so he goes to these debates, but he's very well known in these debates. Eu tenho participado dos fóruns promovidos pelo Ministério Público, pela Casa Civil, desde janeiro de 2019. Because he's something of a controversial figure. He has an abrasive personality. He's not afraid of confrontation. And he goes to the debates and he really tells people what he thinks. And oftentimes what he thinks is the fact that if you build this highway, it could be the end of the Amazon rainforest. And at one of these debates back in September 2021, things got really heated. Scientists who had come to make their case were trying to explain why the Amazon is so important to the climate and how damaging this highway could be. But this crowd was not having it. Como é que pode vir um cara lá dos Estados Unidos aqui? Como é que pode? One man even stood up and he shouted, if we want to tear down all the trees, we're going to tear them down. Se a gente quiser derrubar todas essas árvores, a gente derruba. É nossa. Não é de mais ninguém. Lucas stands up and he goes to the front and he, he gets the microphone. Lucas Ferrante, Impa. Bom, primeiramente eu gostaria de deixar claro que o EIA RIMA já foi analisado. He starts talking about what this could really do to not just the Amazon rainforest, but also to the indigenous communities that are populated there. Pela BR-319, são 63 comunidades com 18 mil indígenas, de forma que o estudo do componente indígena aqui apresentado... But there's also a moment that was crucial. For, for Lucas, because he realized that the crowd was not on his side. Confirmamos a ocorrência de genocídio dos povos. Lucas, peça que conclua, por favor. Participação. Corta o microfone, por favor. So many people there were not seeing it the way that he was seeing. They're not seeing a future of ecological destruction. They're seeing a future in which their potential was being deprived of them. And so Lucas, he realizes this and he sits back down and he looks at the crowd and he realizes that he needs to go out and he needs to get more evidence to show people what this is going to happen. And that's when we decide to go along with them to take one more journey down the BR319. After the break, Terry and Raphael make an unexpected discovery in the rainforest. We'll be right back. 
I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. The reason why the scientist Lucas Fehanch wanted to travel the length of BR319 was to document evidence of illegal deforestation. Makeshift roads that had been hacked through the trees, places where chunks of the forest had been burned to make room for cattle farms. He would map the illegal roads and photograph the damage to help make the case that this road would come at a cost. Yes, it would make transportation easier, but it would also bring devastation. Terry and the photographer Raphael came along for the journey. None of them expected that it would be easy. The logistics were complicated. This highway that runs from Manaus, which is the state capital of Amazonas, all the way to the state capital of Hondonia called Porto Velho. And in between these two cities is more or less just a vast expanse of forest. And the only thing that connects them is this highway that was built in the early 1970s by the Brazilian military dictatorship. And it was part of this broader project to try to integrate the forest into Brazil and populate the forest and try to tame the forest more or less. Because the forest was so strong and because the rains were so fierce, the highway fell into profound disrepair and it was never really rebuilt. And in 1988, it was effectively closed down because it was impassable. The road just exists on the map. It's not, there's the path, but it doesn't have asphalt. It doesn't have signs, you know. So most of the road is just dust and lots of holes on it, lots of mud. So even very, very big trucks, buses, and other vehicles can get stranded, you know. And so the logistics of trying to understand how we were going to get from point A, which was Manaus, down to point B, were complex. If you want to be at night, at the very end of the road, inside the Amazonas state, you have to travel the whole day. So we knew we had to leave early. And so I woke up that morning at 2.30 a.m. And we went and we picked up Lucas, uh, the scientist, and we were on a ferry. You have to cross the Amazon River by ferry just to be able to reach this highway. And we go then to the gas station. And, you know, normally you fill up your car with gas and you, you get on your way. But the driver, he had two massive tanks of gas that he lassoed in the back of the truck and filled those up too because we weren't going to find any gas stations along this, this highway. And then we're off. And the highway is deceptive because you go along it in the beginning. You say, well, geez, this isn't that bad. Why does everyone say it's the worst highway in Brazil? There's pavement. You see yellow lines along the center of it. There's signs and it's a, not a great highway, but it's not the worst highway I've ever been on Brazil. So I was like, you know, maybe we'll see what happens. But then as you get deeper and deeper and deeper into the forest grasp, the highway begins to disappear and begins to deteriorate. The highway then stops. We reach what we call the trecho do meio. Uh, it would be like the middle portion of the road. And the middle stretch is vast, and it goes on for hundreds of miles. If you look to your left, if you look to your right, you only see forest. What's interesting about this middle stretch is the contrast between how bad the road is 
and how pristine the forest is. So in the beginning, when the highway is good, you see the forest is getting degraded. The forest is being deforested by people. You see massive chunks of it being bitten out. And then all of a sudden the highway gets really bad. And then you start to see that the forest regains its strength and the temperature drops and the humidity fills into the air. You see nobody, you see no cars, you see no one by the road. There's no rescue if you need. The people who lay claim to these stretches of land by the highway are not legitimate businessmen, and they work by force. Organized groups of armed criminals rove the road, solving disputes over territory with violence. It's extremely risky to venture out alone. People disappear all the time. A month before we went to this region, in the same region, I have a friend. He is a photojournalist here, too. And he was doing something about the fires in the forest in the city of Labria, uh, which is very close to where we were. And he received some threats. People said that they were going to kill him the next time he was there. So we are not very welcome in this region. Journalists are not welcome, uh, nor scientists. You know, we traveled for hundreds of miles and I didn't see any law enforcement. I'd seen anyone out there patrolling the forest, making sure it was standing. Uh, it was just forest and dirt, and you saw a passerby from time to time here and there. You saw some construction crews trying to you know, do some work on the road, but someone actually trying to stop the destruction, someone trying to preserve the forest. That's something I didn't see. Who are the people that are destroying the Amazon rainforest? Poverty is a piece of this, but it's not poverty centrally that is driving the destruction of the Amazon rainforest. It's criminality and it's greed. Because when you look at the forest, it's no small matter to tear this thing down. I mean, it's big. It's got a lot of trees. I mean, you can't just go out there and tear down the forest. You have to have money. You have to have capital. You have to have equipment. You have to have people that protect that equipment. You have to have a whole infrastructure surrounding the destruction of this forest, surrounding your groups that destroy the forest. So these are sophisticated and well-financed criminal groups that are intent on destroying the forest because they think of it as if you can destroy the forest, you can flip the land. And if you can flip the land, you can make a lot of money off that. And so that is the hope of it. Destruction leads to profits. So these people that tear down the forest are criminals. They are armed. They want to protect what's theirs. And we are in a place where there is no self-service. We are so far removed from any sense of civilization. I got the sense sometimes, especially at night when we're driving down this road, that we might as well be on the surface of the moon. We're so far away from anything. So you see, as you drive down the forest, you see these, these roads, these bifurcating roads that then disappear in the forest. And back in the, in the depths of it, that's where a lot of the destruction happens. The people who do that, they are clever. Because the deforestation areas are not next to the road. When you are on the road, you look to your side, you see the forest and you don't understand it. It's not deforested as people say, but it is because they leave lots of forest and they start deforestation behind that forest they live. So those are very, very tight spaces with dirt roads that have no signs where the authorities don't get. And it's really dangerous to go inside. But to be able to actually know what's actually happening down there, you got to go down them yourself. 
we see then as we're driving, we see the side road that branches off from the highway. And Lucas sees it and he tells the driver to stop the car. And he says, this is the illegal deforestation. And this is new. I haven't seen this one before. So we went there to have a look. The driver didn't want to because he knows the road. He said, no, it's dangerous. And I said, is it safe? Should we go? And he said, no, let's just have a look. We won't leave the car. I felt, you know, this, this wave of, of butterflies and, and nerves in, in my stomach. And I looked over Rafael, who's the photographer, and he's getting his camera ready. And he gives me this look like, I guess, we're going. And we head down. And we get to this, maybe it's a mile down this dirt road. There's nothing. The road is muddy and mucky. And we get to this sign that just says, you know, the guy's name is Marcelo. And it has a number there. And it says that this land is for sale. And Lucasen realizes that this is all, you know, illegal. There's no way you can sell this land. This land belongs to Brazil. This land is, is public. I mean, you can't just go back there and sell this land. So this is fraudulent. And we go deeper and we, we make a right at the fork and then just opens up to this expanse of, of, you know, you see just charred forest and that's still smoking even. So it's been recent. We could see farms, you could see lots of fences mocking the places. Oh, here, this land belongs to someone. This belongs to another one, you know? It was going to be a settlement. It was going to be what Lucas called a massive hidden cattle farm back there in the middle of the forest. And so he realized that we had to let work fast. So he starts taking pictures. He starts taking video. He starts taking down the coordinates of where we were. So he could go back and tell the authorities. He'd go back and put in the scientific research of what we're finding. And he gets back in the car and says, you know, we got we to gotta get going. In that moment, he was furious, though. He was yelling, like, this belongs to the union. This belongs to the country. These people just come in here and they just think they can just tear down all this forest. This is complete criminality. And then all of a sudden, that's when we start hearing this, this squawking of these birds. And everyone's like, what the hell is that? I saw this interesting scene. There was this wooden gate and lots, 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 I mean, hundreds of vultures. And I said, oh, that's an iconic image, I think. The car stopped and Rafael gets out there to document the scene. And I walked for, I mean, 10 or 15 meters, really close, and start taking a picture. And when I was turning back to the car on my right, I think I saw something, I'm not sure, something shiny. It was the belt of a person, you know, the metal part. Also, we start to hear these shouts, these screams. And I look over and I see Rafael racing back toward me. And he's like, he's yelling that he found a body. He's saying, I found a man. He's a man. His hands are tied. And he's just dead there in, in the ditch. It was all dressed up. The face was destroyed because of the vultures. His hands were tied. His belt had the image of the patroness of Brazil, which is Nossa Senhora Aparecida, Our Lady of Aparecida, which is very meaningful for cowboys. There are lots of cowboys in this region, you know? And so we race back to the car and were, and started to go. Eu sei, mas a pisa com denúncia anônima não vai na porra do. Ah, a pisa não cai 
The conversations were heated. Nobody really knew what to do. People were asking the drivers, like, are you sure he's dead? Are you sure he's dead? And we were like, yeah, he's just dead. He's gone. And so we didn't know what to do and because we felt like we had to tell the authorities right away that we found this dead man. But we're so far off in the middle of the forest and in places where many of these communities have been built by the people deforesting the Amazon, we didn't know who to trust. So we're driving down this path out. We were terrified that somebody had seen us. And we're talking about who knew we were here, who had seen us go down this road, who could try to do something to cover up where this crime was. And so ultimately, you know, we we make it back to the the biggest city near there, which is called Umaita. And when we got to Umaita, we got a nice hotel, which looked safe. And we went to the room of the scientist and we called the police officers anonymously. I didn't sleep that night. I spent the whole evening having a look of of people that disappeared in the region. The first question we had was, who is this man? All we knew was that he was wearing, um, he was wearing a cowboy belt. He was wearing jeans. He was wearing a flannel shirt. His hands were pressed in front of him as if in prayer. And the question was, who is this man? Where does he come from? And those questions were quickly answered in the days ahead after the body was reported. And what the story was, was that this man who we'd found had recently spoken to the police about one of his co-workers on the same farm who had disappeared uh, weeks beforehand. And the police asked him in uh, to talk about that man, say, do you know anything that happened about this disappearance? And police told me that uh, this man who we found had implicated their boss in the disappearance of his co-worker and other people. And that shortly after that implication, he himself also disappeared. So what we had found and the man we had found ultimately was likely going to be a witness or a key witness in what was going to be a murder investigation of someone else. So the implication was that he also was disappeared for what he had told police or what he knew. And so it just showed this rippling effect of, of violence and destruction, how these two things melded together, where one criminal investigation, one murder spilled over into another murder, spilled over into others. And this is how we all ended up picking up that trail at the very end. Actually, I think that the body, it's a very, very successful portrait of what happens in that region, because we found one, but... It happens all the time in that region, you know. So the wave of deforestation, it doesn't just bring destruction of trees. It doesn't just bring ecological damage. It doesn't just bring the end of the Amazon. It brings real-world violent crime that ultimately involves all sorts of criminality. It's not any surprise to a certain extent that the people who are willing to work outside the bounds of the law to destroy the forest are willing also to work outside the bounds of the law in order to protect the destruction of that forest, which means using violence. And ultimately, you have this collision where people, um, innocents along the highway, ultimately becoming victimized by people who show up and say, this land now belongs to me, either you gotta go or you're gonna die. And sometimes people get disappeared that way. And um, recently, that has been a situation that's been increasing ever more along the highway. 
as it's become more and more subsumed by this wave of deforestation. All these things get wrapped up together. And what that means then is you have pretty much just a lawless frontier that anything can happen and a lot of things do. Terry McCoy is the Rio de Janeiro bureau chief for The Post. He worked with photographer Rafael Alves on this story. There is so much more about their journey along BR319 that you didn't hear. And they have some incredible photos and videos showing exactly what this road has done to the forest. To check all of that out, find a link in our show notes and at postreports.com. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. This story was produced by Emma Talkoff and Ted Muldoon and edited by Maggie Penman, mixed by Sean Carter. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.